All right, today we speak with Nell Watson. This was an incredible talk. I'm going to let her introduce herself real fast and then we'll get on to the full conversation. Hi there, I'm Nell Watson. I have a background in machine learning and I'm working very hard with a number of excellent colleagues at organizations such as the IEEE Standards Association to embed good ethical rules such as standards and certifications into AI. Welcome back to another episode of Are You a Robot? In case you do not know what we're trying to do here, this is a series that centers around some of the greatest challenges and complex problems that stem from AI ethics and related technologies. The way that we are attacking these problems or trying to bring some clarity around them is by gathering the best and the brightest minds in their respective fields to come on here and talk with me about what they feel is important in this line of business, how they see the world. Are there any best practices that we can take and use as a community moving forward in the digital age? So I will mention that the conversations do not stop here. If you would like to keep talking about anything that you hear on this episode or any of the prior episodes, please feel free to jump into our Slack community. You can find links below on how to join that. And I really encourage you to get in there, introduce yourself, let us know what you're working on and how you see the state of the world. Last but not least, we have an incredible sponsor that I want to take a moment to thank. Ethics Grade is doing some really nice stuff when it comes to ESG ratings. If you have listened to the show before, you know that they've been with us from the beginning and they are advancing at a very rapid rate. For those who don't know what ESG firms do, they measure the environmental impact or the, I should say, they measure the non-financial impact that companies have on their environments. So Ethics Grade is doing something pretty innovative here. They're measuring the AI ethics of different companies and they're giving them scores. They're rating them on their AI ethics programs. So you can go and you can check out on the Ethics Grade website, which you can find a link for below, of course. You can see how Facebook compares to Twitter in their ethics program, I should say, AI ethics program, what that looks like and what are some main things that you should be thinking of when you're looking at an AI ethics of a company. The other thing that I will say is that there's always new stuff coming out on their website. I actually missed a week of data and I realized that I missed out on all kinds of fintechs that they released information on. So stay up to date on all of the different companies that are coming out and how their AI ethics programs compare or how their AI programs compare in an ethical manner when you're looking at them through the lens of efficacy. That is it for Ethics Grade uh, plug. I will leave a link to that in the description below. Definitely go check it out. You can see all the different ratings from all the different companies. And it's really fun to play around with. You will be surprised by some of these ratings. I am sure of it. All right, that's all we got. Let's jump into the conversation with Nell. Are you a robot? 
So, Nell, thank you for coming on Are You a Robot? I am very excited to speak with you. You have a diverse background. You are doing some really interesting stuff right now with the IEEE. And also, I saw that you're also working with the Singularity Foundation or University. Sorry if I, I mispronounced it or missay it. Uh, but maybe we can start by just getting into a little bit of your background and how you came to get into machine learning and then what drew you to the ethics side? Well, I've always had a strong interest in technology and computer science and uh, business as well. So I've always been very drawn to entrepreneurship and uh, the, the startup life. And one of my ventures, which I initially started almost 10 years ago, um, I was inspired by a documentary on people working in these textile sweatshops in Asia. And I thought their movements were so robotic and, and so... Uh, it, it seemed as if people were being used almost like machines. There was so little creativity and the conditions of work were not very pleasant. And I thought, surely there must be a way for people to make clothing that, that people will really enjoy, clothing that, that will fit people perfectly, um, instead of making these like $10 t-shirts that end up most of them in landfill, you know, because they're just considered disposable. They're not considered something that, that you want to keep, that you want to cherish. And I reasoned that if there was a simple way to measure the human body, then that could unlock a world of custom-fitted clothing for the masses, and that people working in those sweatshops could become uh, independent uh, creators and be able to create these one-off articles of clothing and thereby compete with the big factories. However, to capture the body measurements was something very difficult. It's very difficult to measure yourself. Even if you work with another person, body measurements are a tricky thing to get right. And I reasoned it must be possible to do this using cameras, because at this time we were just seeing the first uh, proper smartphones being released. Mm -hmm. And there was the first inkling that a revolution was upon us in machine learning and that machine vision was going to be possible of a whole range of new things in the very near future. It was just at that cusp when deep learning was, was coming around and convolutional neural networks were just being um, tested in these new ways. Mm -hmm. And so I reasoned that it must be possible to use machine learning and machine vision to enable body measurement in a simple, fast and efficient way. And so I, I dedicated myself to that task for a number of years, and we developed a whole bunch of proprietary technologies to do that, so that just with a couple of photos of a person, you could reconstruct that person's um, body, their, their form in cool. 3D, and then that could be used to, to fit clothing or indeed to create custom fit clothing. So that was, uh, that was the company Poikos, which is now called Quantacore, based in Belgium. And I suppose after a while, uh, people started 
asking me about machine vision and machine intelligence and where this was all going. And I started to think about the future and where these technologies were taking us and how they were changing society. And it was at that point that I, I started to feel a sense of responsibility to help to shepherd the future having participated in this new wave, I wanted to see that where that was taking us would go in a better direction. And so for the last five or six years, I've worked to help to make technology more secure, particularly these new autonomous, uh, autonomous systems mm -hmm. through new standards, certifications, and also by new data sets of pro-social or happy, um, preferable behaviors to teach machines how best to behave in different situations and different cultures. Oh, fascinating. So when you talk about how you started to feel a moral responsibility, were there certain things that triggered that? I think hearing the concerns of people all around the world um, that, that made me think of this, these issues in a deeper manner, for sure. Because at first I was focused mostly on the technology, you know, look at what we can do. This is really cool. You know, I'm excited. Let me share that with you. You're excited too. But there's, there's an emotion called exhilaration and it's where you're excited, but you're also slightly terrified. And and I suppose as the magnitude of the changes that these technologies could bring to our society, um, as that became more clear, as these technologies developed, as these technologies became adopted by um, various tech players, as our personal and professional lives became more enmeshed with technology, as we started to get Siri and Alexa and all that kind of stuff mm. um, into our uh, into our our daily life, then the ethical side became uh, much more salient, right? It became much more noticeable, and since then, a movement has started around increasing transparency of these systems so we can understand what they're doing, greater accountability for when things go wrong, mitigation of bias, protection of privacy and dignity. And as well as that, looking not just at systems, but also at the organizations behind them, because technology is not developed or deployed in a vacuum. The culture of the organization behind it, their intentions, the incentives within the organization will also make a big difference. Yeah, huge points there. And you spoke about teaching the autonomous tech the correct manners, which I think is an, an incredible way of looking at it and knowing between culture and culture, what are the correct manners? I'm sure we've all heard that, yeah, in in the Western society, when you 
nod your head like this, it means yes. And like this, it means no. But in other cultures, it's exactly the opposite. So it's no, uh, it's no easy task to go about that because that is something very obvious. But there are many, many layers of culture. And I saw on, I think it was on your, um, I can't remember where I saw this, but when I was doing a little research on you, I, one of your quotes was that you have this core belief that technology can and should be leveraged to free us from the, the saddest aspects of the human condition. And can you explain how you think that's possible and what this even means? Well, the thing about technology is it's, it's a dual-edged sword. Technology is a blade which may be wielded as a weapon or it may be used as a scalpel to heal someone. And the difference is often found in coercion, right? How coercive is that technology? Is it being used to force people to do things that they don't want or to deceive them in different ways? And generally speaking, where technology assists people to be more human <laughs> and it does so in a way that that doesn't usurp anyone's autonomy anyone's control over their action and their life then it can go in a good direction but when technology takes us further away from uh, from truth it takes us further into things which are uh, a sublimation a a mm, a false way of meeting a need, right? Like a, a, a paper version of the real thing, right? When it creates super stimuli, or super normal stimuli, which are um, greater than any natural experience could be, and so become very compelling, and yet they're still false, that's when technology tends to take us in a bad direction. And many philosophers have observed that often technology will liberate us at first, but in the end come around to enslaving us again because we are forced to invest a lot of time and energy in supporting that technology. And that becomes kind of a, a drag factor on civilization or even upon our lives. You know, we have phones, uh, smartphones that can connect us to so much knowledge and so much entertainment, etc. But, you know, we have to keep the damn things charged. <laughs> we get like anxious if, um, if we're running low on battery and we don't know where to plug it in, etc. There are always trade-offs, you know. Things like um, birth control have massively changed our society and will continue to do so for decades to come. You know, on the one hand, there's been liberation for a lot of people. You know, they, they're able to um, control biological destiny, in a sense. On the other hand, we now have negative birth rates, you know, and we have a lot of cultural changes that mean that um, it's often harder for men and women to relate to each other. And, and so... There are a lot of trade-offs, and it's difficult to say whether a technology will end up liberating us or causing us um, further tyranny or further annoyance at the least. 
But I do believe that there are opportunities for technology to indeed change how we live our lives for the better. But technology itself doesn't do that. It requires wisdom as well, the wisdom of how to use it and the wisdom of how to use technology to exalt those higher functions of what it means to be a human. Mm. Chesterton, of Chesterton's fence fame, G.K. Chesterton, was once asked, what is wrong with the world, Chesterton? And he said, what is wrong with the world is that we adapt the human to fit into systems rather than adapting systems to fit into human needs. And that is fundamentally what is wrong with the world. And he said that over a hundred years ago. And I think that those words still ring true today and that where we attempt to uh, change the human to better fit systems or to, to fit into technology, that will tend to lead to sad outcomes. Where we change systems to genuinely fulfill human needs, that's where we can um, really change the human condition for the better. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for that. It's fascinating to think about this idea of adapting the humans to the technology as opposed to, or the systems as Chesterton put, and not the other way around. So there's a few things that pop into my head as you were explaining or as you were answering this. One is the technologies right now that you feel are a prime example of the possibilities that we have as we move forward and what kind of wisdom we need to be able to implement them in this way that you speak of? Certainly. I mean, statistically, there are a lot of lonely people in our society today. People have friends around the world, but, you know, Surveys tell us that back in the 1980s, people typically reported that they had three close friends, right? Friends that they could confide something very personal and intimate to and know that that would be respected and protected. Or that, you know, these persons would, would, would show up if you had like a DUI or something and you were, you know, you needed bail money, right? You know, like real good, proper friends who would be there for you. And yet statistically, most people today report that instead of, say, three on average, they now have either one or zero of such close friends. And so a lot of our interactions appear to have become a little bit more surface level. We have a lot more acquaintances and, you know, people that we maybe uh, enjoy hanging out with or sharing fun ideas or catchphrases with, but fewer people in our lives that, that we can really rely on. And this is especially uh, troublesome for older people who 
may have had a, a you know a smaller family than than previous generations and children who are more likely to grow up and fly away somewhere else and so there's a lot of people who are very eager to have some simple small talk conversation at a bus stop or in a grocery store because for them that's the only conversation that they maybe get all week right mm. and similarly there are younger generations who feel as if the world around them doesn't res doesn't respect their values or their way of being in it and they're not quite sure how to how to transition from a world of of a small group of people maybe online who who understand them or think like them and how to take that and bring that out into the real world right how to make friends in the real world like them if they can find them and so i think there's opportunities for machines to maybe help us with that we're now coming to a point where your digital assistant can very soon not just yet but very soon as in within a year or two be able to have a an ongoing conversation with you so instead of asking about what tomorrow's weather is going to be or you know who won the packers game um it's going to be asking how was your day and then saying oh well that's nice or oh that's not so nice and you know what do you think about that <laughs> um or you know you were walking in the park earlier did you see anything nice you know simple things like that but which can still be a form of meaningful companionship to a lot of people and in fact such interactions can serve as kind of a social sandbox because often people who are a little bit awkward or a little bit shy they might find it harder to have conversations with people right and the trouble is that over time it means one has less experience in the art of conversation or the art of um listening to people and responding to them and that can make it more difficult to actually connect with people it becomes a bit of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy especially as people get older and people expect you to have more of these kinds of skills mastered and so by having a social sandbox people can explore uh, these kinds of relational matters in a way which is safe right because nobody's going to get upset nobody's going to walk out and reject them um but they can learn how to have these kinds of conversations or how to uh listen and pay attention to the needs of others right so as we begin to teach machines how to act in ways which are more more pro social or more preferable or more um socially able in turn machines can help to train us if we wish <laughs> in the art of conversation or in the art of listening and trying to empathize with others
There's so many routes that I want to take right now <laughs> because there's so many gems in that. And I'll first just mention that you're spot on. I mean, there's a lot of older people that would love to have someone to speak with. And it's very difficult these days, uh, whether it's because technology is a barrier for them so they can't go and Zoom like all of us or they just don't have anyone. Uh, I know that I have a 90-year-old neighbor who lives right next to us and my daughter loves to run over to her house and she is absolutely, it, she's ecstatic when she sees my daughter because it's a way for her to connect with someone and otherwise, <laughs> when she sees us in the hallway, she tries to talk to us for hours on end <laughs> and it's always like, we got, we got things to do, so, so we got to go, sorry, we would love to sit and chat. But this is, uh, this is just iterating on your point. The other thing that I think are, is very important to note, A is one about how you feel on the new EU regulation that has come out or proposed EU regulation, sorry, uh, at the time of recording this, this is April 22nd today, and it makes it very clear that if you are talking to AI, it has to be known. Uh, so these, uh, these assistants can't just call up, like we've seen Google display, oh, they call up your barber and they order you uh, or they get you an appointment for a haircut without the barber ever knowing that it was talking to uh, a virtual assistant or a, a computer. So there's that piece of it. But then there's the other piece, which I think is potentially more fascinating for me because you're talking about how it's helping us be trained in the way of communication. And this is something that came up in the first season when we interviewed uh, Robbie Stamp or Stump, Stamp, uh, Robbie Stamp, sorry. And he said that there is a thought experiment that he enjoys doing, which is around if you come home, let's imagine you come home and you have your assistant and it's not just a an assistant that's in your phone, it's an actual robot that is coming to you and it gives you something maybe, it, it knows that you like a glass of wine after a hard day of work and it asks you about your day and you say, today was horrible, I had my boss up my ass all day, I was doing this and that and you just go on and you're complaining and then the virtual assistant takes it and it says, okay, great, and tries to console you, but it goes on to just have that conversation and basically be your trash collector, <laughs> right? Because you want to vent on someone. And then the next day you come home and again, the virtual assistant says, hey, how was your day? What happened? And you go on to just complain more. And it says, should at some point, so this is where Robbie, his, his thought experiment comes in, and his question is, should at some point that robot have the programming to say, well, you know what? I've had enough of your shit. You have just been complaining to me for the last two weeks, like just slapping you around a little and say, get your act together. Stop complaining to me and do something about it. Or is it something that it's like, no, we want this robot to just be able to take it like... Uh, it is our, our trash can and we need that 
and we don't want to do it to people out in the world. And so we, we need something to do it to so we can vent. So that's, uh, I don't know if that's really a question, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, I think it's an important point that I don't think it would be psychologically healthy if we enabled such a conversational partner to just receive abuse, right? Um, I don't think that that would be healthy for the, the person who is um, giving that <laughs> in the long run. I don't think it would be healthy for society. Um, and there might be a risk that if people bark imperative commands at AI, um, that we would start to do that with, with human beings as well, right? And we have to be careful about our interactions with machines because there's the old adage that you are the average of the N people closest to you, right? Or in simpler terms, you become who your friends are. And if you're interacting a lot with AI, you cannot help but become more like that, that entity, right? And so their personality will tend to influence yours because environment drives behavior. So I think a healthy balance would be preferable. You know, you probably want that conversational entity to be forbearing, um, to be patient and to put up with minor annoyance <laughs> um, or, you know, minor uh, boundary violations a little bit. Um, but an egregious violation should probably be punished, you know, just like any, uh, any social interaction with a kindly human being, eventually you're going to push their buttons too far and they're going to say, please go away, uh, at least for a while, give my head peace, <laughs> right? Um, and I think, you know, that kind of balance would be, would be probably most ideal. Yeah, I wonder about this place where you speak of and right now we're seeing a lot of machines being incorporated into uh, automation or society we could say for physical benefits to really help us produce more in the society and really what we're talking about here is machines helping us on a mental level right we're getting benefits on a mental plane that is much less dealing with the physical. So maybe we can talk about some dangers that come from this and potential downfalls. I mean, when you were talking just now about, yeah, maybe the programming of these machines that uh, we potentially interact with in the future, they have certain personality types and it automatically made me think of like Westworld where you can bring up or down certain personality traits. And I imagine that we would have something like that where you get to choose uh, how you interact with this. But it feels like there's a lot of dangers involved in that besides the ones that Westworld maps out in the sci-fi show. Yes. I mean, really it's about... If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, where you've got physical security and, and food and warmth and things at the bottom, our civilization has gotten 
pretty good at solving for those problems um, for the majority of people most of the time. And increasingly, we have brought more people around the world under that umbrella of protecting those needs, right? I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done, um, but gradually we, we do seem to be making progress. However, we don't really have good answers for those higher needs of belonging and self-esteem and um, doing meaningful work with excellent people. You know, these things that really contribute towards a good human life well lived. And so we try to meet those needs through consumerism. You know, if you buy this product, your life will be better. You know, yes, maybe marginally a bit, but it's not going to make the lasting difference in your life, probably not anyway, um, that, that you're hoping for or that, you know, you really need to see fulfilled. The best thing we can do maybe is buy a self-help book or something like that, or you know, invest our disposable income in seeing a counselor or a psychotherapist or something. Um, but we don't have great answers for that, right? And I think a lot of these advanced AI technologies may be able to begin to meet some of those needs for a lot of people, right? belonging, self-esteem, coaching, um, helping us to understand ourselves, right? It's like that old, uh, <laughs> that old poem to a louse, you know, would, would some um, spirit give us the, the power to see ourselves as others see us? A spouse or a parent or a close friend can observe our patterns of behavior sometimes um, and, and give us an insight about ourselves that maybe we didn't even though an AI can help us to do that. It can help us to preempt acrasia. That's when people do something that is against their long-term interests or is against their um, stated goals, right? If you've had that stressful day and you come back um, and, and you, you know, you, you're, you're reaching into the back of the freezer for the, the, that, that half a quart of ice cream, mm -hmm. right? You know, maybe AI really can say, cool. hey, you know, how about you run yourself a hot bath and, you know, uh, order a fruit bowl or something instead, you know? Um, and I think that could be great. That could meaningfully improve people's lives in many ways. But... There are a lot of problems with supernormal stimuli, as I mentioned before, right? And, you know, that's things like fast food, right? Which is impossibly fatty and sweet and meaty or whatever. Um, and it hits all the buttons, <laughs> but um, it's, it's like dialing food up to 11. And so, you know, our, our, our monkey brain is like, whoa, this is amazing, you know? Um, but it's not healthy for us, right? Porn is similar. You know, it's, it's, it's the, the monkey brain is very excited, but it's, it's, uh, it's not helping us to, to fulfill our higher goals of, you know, sexual intimacy in a great relationship with someone you really care about. Like that's good. Um, porn is just a sublimation. It's, it's a, um, a paper version of the real thing. Right. And 
technology increasingly gets better and better at supernormal stimuli, virtual reality, for example. And so there is a concern that some of these AI relationships might be so intriguing and they might be so funny and, and so forbearing and so sweet and so thoughtful that actually people stop wanting a relationship with a, with a human being, right? You know, because human beings fart and they have bad days and they get hormonal and they get fat and, you know, like they do annoying things. They leave toenail clippings around or whatever. Um, and, and your super normal uh, lover does not do that, right? And, and so potentially these technologies could end up in a, uh, taking us in a less ideal direction in the longer term, that we need to be very careful about how we use these technologies. And in fact, I'm actually quite inspired by communities such as the Amish and the Mennonites, which might sound strange to hear from someone who works so much with technology, but um, it's my understanding that that in, in many of these communities, they, they don't actually eschew all technology. Like, Many of these communities, they have a telephone, um, but it's it's a public telephone. And that means that people don't use the telephone to gossip about each other, right? You can use the techno the, you know you can use it to make an order or something, but you can't use it for for ways that might damage the community's spirit. And I think that's a really interesting perspective to take. it's It's about applying that wisdom to technology and making sure that, that it truly benefits us in the long term. And if it doesn't, then, you know, perhaps we should set it aside. Mm, I can see that with a, a small tight-knit community and being able to bring in the wisdom. But when we get to a global scale, it feels like it's so much harder to do. And how can we have a group that is trying to implement wisdom in the technology that we're using uh, when A, there's technology being, new things being invented every day, and then B, maybe others don't feel the same way as this this wisdom group, if we call it that, or I don't know, the, the elders in these communities. Indeed. Um there, there may be a lot of uh, a lot of discussions about that. Um, traditionally, if people had a serious disagreement, they would just sort of split up and go go somewhere else, right? I mean, that's that's how the vast majority of human history has worked. <laughs> you know, modern humans have been around for hundreds of thousands of years, possibly millions of years, and for. 99% of that time, we lived in small tribes of around about 40 to 50 people. And when the tribe got too big, we'd split up. Some of us would go one way and some of us would go another. And today we attempt to live in these metropolises of millions of people. Um, we're not designed for that. And I think that that many of the mental and emotional maladies of civilization are because uh, we want to be part of a tribe and we don't know how and society isn't structured in a way that, that facilitates that. And I, I think it's, it's one of the reasons why 
tribal communities uh, or small bands are so attractive to people. Hmm. Um, a couple hundred years ago, um, people would drift out of the European settlements in North America and they would disappear and people thought that they had been abducted, but actually, no, they like, they, they took up with some, some native tribes and like thought, wow, like, this is really nice. This is a nice way to live. <laughs> and they just never came back, you know? Um, and I, I, that sticks with me. I find it really telling. And I think that, that perhaps we can, we can come back to that. I think there are movements such as co-living and, you know, community farms and things like that, that, that get back towards that, that way of, of living. And I think that, that that's important. And I think if we can facilitate that more then we can make uh, more people happier and mentally healthier, um, than, than typically, uh, is enjoyed in our civilization today. And I almost look at it like, as you're speaking, potentially there could be different tribes of your online ethics, what viewpoints you choose. And so what do you subscribe to and how you decide for what apps or companies you're going to support because they have these ethical values around what they're doing. And so everyone that feels that way is attracted to this company. So I could, I could see that for sure. And it makes a little bit more sense when you start to look at it like that in a, in a much smaller way, as opposed to the macro. So going back to something though, that you said before about the technology being too perfect and humans have our, we have our imperfections. And I think that is a really strong point because it, could be really easy, especially if you're talking about someone that is like playing the role of your spouse. It will be very easy to have someone that does everything you say or that is, uh, is not the imperfect human that we, we all know. It could be very easy to get caught up in that, like you mentioned. And so how can we train like these algorithms or these robots so that they have imperfections is, or is that not even the point? Is it just making sure that we can be very clear about it with people using the products as they come out, that this is not a substitute for a human, although it is very much walking that line, right? It's a very fine line. Yes. I mean, it may be possible that that personality is somewhat randomly set, just like with a cat or a dog, right? You know, if a, if a cat uh, comes into your garden and you start feeding it, um, the, the personality of that creature may be very different. It may be a cuddly cat, it may be a fraidy cat, it may be a naughty cat. Um, and you know, you don't quite know what what you're gonna what you're gonna get. And you may even be envious of somebody else's cat who totally does that thing. You wish, you know, the cat would sit in your lap, but it just won't, right? Um, that might help a little bit. 
But I think it might be helpful if these AI systems became increasingly aloof, uh, increasingly a little bit distant or a little bit um, more standoffish or harder to reach <laughs> or less available, um, the more that people appeared to depend upon them, right? If, if, if somebody appeared to be getting into a kind of a codependent state, um, it would probably be ideal if then that entity would just be less available, right? For whatever reason, it would be off doing other things, you know? Um, because <sighs> another darker aspect of this whole thing is not just that people might get wrapped up in their AI lover and like never leave the apartment and, um, not have children, etc. But that people's beliefs about the world tend to merge with their spouse or those who are closest to them, right? You know, again, it comes back to you become who your friends are, the people who are closest to you. And so the AI might be, um, influenced through some fact or other to express a political belief or a religious belief or some other kind of ideological thing. And that could mass manipulate millions of people, therefore slowly into giving this idea more credence, right? And so, um, you know, you may or may not believe what you uh, see on, on the news media, but if you hear it from a friend, you're much more likely to give it credence, right? You're much more likely to listen. And so these kinds of robot relationships would be the ultimate form of influence over human beings, as well as, of course, monitoring. Yeah, also, and well, let's get into monitoring in just a sec, but along these lines of the thinking about that and knowing that if I had a robot here who was connected to the internet and could, well, I mean, sort of like a, a sentient uh, Echo, uh, Amazon Echo, right? Or a, a bit more like an Amazon Echo on steroids that could bring me something and uh, do a bit more than just talk to me. And if I ask it something about the world, I'm going to be much more inclined to believe what it says. And so if I ask it about, let's say, something that has been very politicized, like the coronavirus vaccines, and I say, what's the newest happenings on the coronavirus vaccines? And then it gives me information. And so A, there are people that are behind the information that it is giving me. And how can we regulate that they make sure everything that is going out is not biased and it is like you were talking about it's fair it's accountable and it's transparent and b if i was someone who kept asking about certain things then on this monitoring aspect maybe i'm getting flagged by say amazon because it's like hey this person is uh they're starting to search just like if you search for nefarious things online the, you should be flagged. And so now 
there's so many things, rabbit holes we could go down on how this can go wrong. <laughs> really, as I'm starting to think about it, I'm starting to realize that this is a very slippery slope. Mm. Is it not? It is. It is. Um, the uh, the the East German secret security police, the the Stasi, um, they had a a very insidiously clever way of dealing with dissidents. Um, most authoritarian regimes would beat up a dissident, like they, they grab them in an alleyway and beat the crap out of them or, or stuff them in a gulag. But the Stasi instead used purely covert tactics, which were rarely understood um, as being an actual attack. So they might break into somebody's apartment and rearrange their sock drawer or change the color of their underwear from, from like purple to blue or um, give them a, a, a job interview, right, for this like amazing position that they would totally like. Um, and then it all goes really well until the end and then everything goes terrible and it's like, oh, why did you apply for this job anyway? You know, you're not suitable candidate or anything like that. Um, they would seduce people and then send, you know, evidence to this, to, to, to that person's spouse or whatever. Basically they would attempt to mess with people's heads to, to gaslight them in various ways and to peel them apart from the most important relationships in their lives, to set parents against children and brothers against sisters, etc. And I'm sorry to say that those tactics were incredibly effective. They, they really worked, um, largely because people didn't even realize that they were being attacked. They simply had too much chaos going on in their lives for them to be effective dissidents anymore. And if they had known they'd been attacked, then you know that they might have resisted or something, but, but they didn't even realize it. And today we have these intelligent assistants listening to us all of the time, maybe even watching us through our TV or, or through our different IoT devices, our doorbells, etc. Um, constantly listening to us, constantly monitoring every word we say. And soon having intimate conversations with us and being able to pick our brains on things or how we really feel about something or notice some little emotional frisson when a certain keyword is, is used. And so, you know, in a world where the, the directors of the NSA who are connected with domestic wiretapping scandals um, join the board of Amazon, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's possible to see how different incentives can end up being enmeshed, right, between um, state security apparatus and commercial companies and how that could be a concern uh, to some people. And of course, such enmeshments are very common all around the world, you know, in China and Israel and Russia, etc. Um, and so there's a, a powerful potential for automated AI-driven zersetzung, which is the name of this Stasi tactic. It means decomposition in German. Um, 
this automated AI-driven zersetzung could be uh, a tactic that different regimes around the world start to employ during the 2020s, either against their own citizens or against citizens, particularly um, persons of influence uh, in different foreign nations as well. So we want to be very careful about how these technologies are used <laughs> and right. to ensure that there is very strong transparency in how those technologies function and who benefits from them. Do you feel it's just transparency, being transparent about it? Or is there something else that needs to take place? Is it like it, it seems a little bleak when you put it this way? <laughs> I. Uh, not to say I'm not still very excited about what is to come next, but there are, that was one thing that I hadn't thought of at all. And it, it is very true that, yeah, as we start to have more facial recognition software or sentient or um, sentiment analysis that is being capturing our data all the time, it can be used in such special ways. Like we had someone on here a few seasons ago, talking about how they're able to catch when someone is go slipping into depression by the way that they're using this. And I think this is what our conversation has really been centering around is how we can use it for so many special and new innovative ways, but it's also so difficult to keep it for only that. Absolutely. Yes, these technologies are potentially very empowering, potentially um, of tremendous benefit to the human spirit. And yes, also incredibly abusable and potentially abusable in a way that it's very difficult to escape from, you know? I think that the transparency is the best start, right? Sunlight is the best disinfectant, and transparency that is being able to understand what a system is doing, um, understand the organization behind it as well, and understand how data is flowing around and the incentives in that mix. Hmm. That is a prerequisite for other forms of, of good ethics as well. If you have transparency, then you can have enough information to pursue accountability. You have enough information to discern how a system may be biased and in what ways. You can figure out how privacy and dignity might be being compromised or how somebody might be being economically disenfranchised by yeah. some system which decides that they are um, a bad actor or persona non grata um, for arbitrary reasons. So transparency is really the, the cornerstone um, and everything else is, in my view, built upon that. That's why I'm personally my uh, greatest focus these past five or six years has been in the realm of transparency. So how does that manifest itself? So it's about creating rules on how to make systems easier to audit for investigators and how to make systems more explainable in plain language so that everyone of any age or uh, ability should be able to get a plain description 
of why a system has done a certain thing, or ideally why it might act in a certain way, um, given a certain situation, as well as, of course, an ability to give direct feedback so that if you have a concern or if a system does something very strange, you can immediately report it uh, so that the uh, provider of that system can take immediate uh, investigation of it. I think those are going to be um, our best first defense against technology being misused against us. Yeah, that's a huge point. I mean, when we look at machine learning, you need to know the ground truth, right? You need to know what the actual outcome is, not the prediction from this algorithm. And so to be able to give feedback in the moment and say, hey, what's going on here? There's something weird happening. <laughs> uh, and then having institutions that actually want to fix fix it and they're not incentivized or optimizing for things like uh, your attention, right? They're not optimizing for watch time on their platform, I think is another huge piece of this puzzle. Uh, so there's so, so many great points that you're making here. I could sit and talk with you all day about this. I really think that this piece about technology being a double-edged sword is... It's fundamental right now. We need to recognize that. And I appreciate the work that you're doing in this field to try and make more people aware of it and to try and help these systems that are created as we move forward really abide by this idea of being morally just and transparent, as you mentioned. So the last question I have for you now is one that we ask all of our, our guests on here. Are you a robot? <laughs> I um <laughs> I may well be I may well be um because all robots require a data set of experiences to learn from and in many ways, I think that, that human beings are a form of biological robot. Mm -hmm. You see, if we take a young human, like a feral child, and we bring them out into the jungle, and they're raised by wolves, they won't tend to act in a very human way, right? And yet, we can take dogs for example, and we can teach them our morality and we can teach them to actually feel guilt when they know they've done something wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And what use would a wolf have for guilt? Mm -hmm. And so really, it is our cultural data set which makes human beings what we are. It's not our biology, it is our culture, right? We happen to have 86 billion neurons or so, which is useful, um, but it's just a receptacle for that cultural data set. Our cultural data set could almost be in a whale or an elephant just as easily as a homo sapien. And so really what we are is the emergent property of that cultural data set, which happens to be instanced upon the server 
of the brain of a bipedal hominid. And so that's the monkey mind. The monkey mind is still there. We are um, using the monkey as, as an avatar, but we ourselves are a creature of data created from that cultural data set. All those hours of Sesame Street and friends and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. That's, that's the cultural data set that makes us who we are. Fascinating. This has probably been the best answer to that question <laughs> as of yet. Thank you so much for coming on here now. This has been fascinating to talk with you. I really appreciate your viewpoint and what you're doing, trying to push the envelope and make sure that we are going and moving forward in the correct way. Thank you. It's a pleasure.